I look first. I looked at the amps, and I went, "Well, they got all the right amps." Then I looked at guitars, and I went, "They got all the right guitars." And I asked the uh, guy next to me, I says, who are, you, who are these guys? I go, oh, it's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And, you know, then all of a sudden money's coming out. And all of a sudden Dave disappears, <laughs> comes roaring in in this motorbike into the, into the breakfast room at this Holiday Inn, stalls it in the middle of the restaurant and then drives out. The faces were, it was like traveling with the Marx Brothers. <laughs> and in the room there was... Mick was there, Mick Ronson was there. And there was this couple sat on the uh, on the settee uh, working out if they had enough money to buy a packet of cigarettes, and that was Dave and Angie Bowie. Who's easier to work with, Don Henley or John Fogarty? Oh, God. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. You don't want to. I don't know. <laughs> Take the fifth on that. If there was one more tour that you guys could do, what band would you pick that you've worked with to do it with? I think we'd both go for the same one if he was alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, this is Party Like a Rockstar podcast, and I'm your host, Joel. Today's episode is brought to you by Misha's Kind Foods. They're an LA-based small business making the world's finest non-dairy cheese on the market today. They're lactose-free, paleo, keto, kosher, perev, and 100% vegan. If you like what you see, check out the next video. If you like this video, please subscribe and like by clicking the little round button on the bottom right. To learn more about me or our other guests on the show, go to joelrody.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. The handle is Joel Rody. If you haven't already read my book, Memoir of a Rody, it's now available through Amazon and paperback Kindle or as an audiobook. I hope you enjoy the show. There's an old friend of mine who I worked with for many years, Dinky Dawson. I mean, Dinky Road, Life on the Road, I mean, many, many years ago. That, uh, you know, when I first started working with him, when it was Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, you know, back in the day. Sure. uh, I think it was back then when we met Richard, wasn't it? You were working for the Faces at the time. Back when you were with Pink Floyd. Was it, Cat? Yeah, it was at Crystal Palace in 1971. Oh, God, yes. Where you guys exploded the, what was it, uh, in the pond. Oh, we had, a, we had an octopus. Octopus, that's what it was, I remember. Because when you went on, it just started coming out. I went, oh, my God, I'd never seen anything like that. It just <laughs> Oh, my God, I forgot all about that, yeah. Was it an English octopus? <laughs> uh, it was a very purple and pink one. What we did at Crystal Palace, Crystal Palace had, um, it was a, an orchestral bowl, you know, just a, an arch. Well, back in those days with the Floyd, we were, there wasn't PA companies or lighting companies or anything like that. So um, what happened was um, when you were doing shows with anybody, you know, at that time it was Harvey Goldsmith was the promoter. And um, he asked us, you know, if we use our PA and everything for shows. But that particular day, we, uh, we'd sunk in the pond, this um, inflatable octopus. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we put it in there because the audience obviously is around the edge of the pond. So they're quite a way away. Was it and to then, keep the audience out of the pond? Uh, 
Well, in those days, it varied depending on how much acid they'd all taken or whatever, whether they got in there and tried to swim across. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, as Richard will tell you, the music business was very, very different. Then. It, it's, um, it changed radically. I think when I first started working with the Floyd, I think is when it all of a sudden, it became a business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think... You know, both Richard and me started in the business. And tell me if I'm wrong, Richard. We got involved in the business because we both bought a van, a what? truck, you know, to drive drive the equipment around. So bands never had enough money or their own vehicle. So yeah. both Richard and me, we did a, a, a talk at the, um, God, what is it, in L.A.? What did we, did we do that? Um, what was the thing we did the talk on Richard um I can't they, was it for the Parnelli thing yeah that was it that was in Las Vegas was it in Vegas or was it in LA oh yeah it was one in Vegas I did yeah. mine in Vegas and then we came yeah. back and did it in in, in, in LA in yeah. LA in Anaheim yeah but there was I think there was three or four of us on the on the um <laughs> on the panel and, uh, you know, obviously you get all the, you know, regular people coming in and people who want to get in the music business and all like that. So obviously they asked Richard and me, how we got in the business. So uh, we both said, well, we bought a van. We were a commodity, you know, yeah. so yeah. you used to sell yourself to the highest well, bid. Well, Richard, so, so, Richard, I read uh, you were the guy with the suitcase handcuffed to you while you were in the services. That was it. That was true, yeah. What were you taking around? Are you allowed to tell us? Around. What it was is I was stationed at a NATO missile base outside of Athens in Greece. And at this ordnance company, we held all the documents for the missile bases around the Mediterranean. And when one of the missile bases wanted a document so they could work on a missile, we would pull that document. They would either come and get it, and we'd check it out to them, and they'd go back fly or we had couriers too we had people working in our section but what, what would happen is sometimes if somebody in let's say uh we had a place in tripoli at that time they wanted to borrow a document for three or four days we would fly there two of us there'd be a two-man control guy with the with the briefcase had the handcuffs and stuff we'd go to the air base we'd get a uh air flight to tripoli we'd sign it out to them if it was only one day we'd probably just stay there if it was four or five days we'd go back then we'd send either either you know there was there was like 12 of us so we'd send two other or whoever go back to get it and then bring it back to to greece yeah. all right i'm gonna introduce you guys but you don't need it i gotta tell you one thing though i gotta tell you Joel, I got to tell you one thing on that, and uh, that's why Tom said, "Well, I don't know what he was doing with that do- with that briefcase." We had a uh, missile base in Turkey. Okay. So I go there and I met the guys at the Air Force base because we landed at an Air Force base, a U.S. Air Force base, and eventually I was able to buy hash from them. So they turned me on to a guy. So I, when we went back to Greece. And nope. that man's name was Chris Adamson. <laughs> no, no. When, when, when I went back to Greece, I put it in the briefcase because nobody, you couldn't look in there unless you had a need to know. And the only two people that had a need to know at that time were me 
and the guy I was with carrying the stuff. Okay. So we just brought it back to Greece, dropped it off, at a, you know, dropped it off before we got to the to the missile site, and then go about our business. And then we went down to Square on on the weekends and sold it to tourists. That's great. <laughs> you were always meant to work in music. Let <laughs> <laughs> me introduce you guys, but um, you need no introduction to all of us roadie folk. But anybody who's not listening who's, who doesn't know you guys, let me tell them who you are. So, Chris Adamson is a production manager. He's worked for John Mayer, Tom Petty, Neil Young, Steely Dan, Lionel Richie, Bette Midler, Diana Ross, Lenny Kravitz, Michael Bolton, Def Leppard, Frank Sinatra, Dead and Company. The Birds in 1967, ELP in 1968. He worked for Pink Floyd from 1969 through 1984. Fleetwood Mac from 1969 to 2009. Chris is the recipient of the 2019 Parnelli Lifetime Achievement Award. My second guest is his friend Richard Fernandez, who is a tour manager. He's worked for The Faces, The Eagles, Frank Zappa, Dave Mason, Keith Richards, Ron Wood, yes, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Fleetwood Mac, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, John Fogarty, Jeff Lynn, The Cars, Olivia Newton-John, and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers for a whopping 38 years. Richard is the recipient of the 2016 Parnelli Lifetime Achievement Award. So today is my buddy Rocco Reedy's birthday. I don't know if you guys know Rocco, but I'm, yeah. I'm assuming you would. He's one of the best stage managers ever lived. And he had two questions for you guys. And um, you don't mind. So, so the first question for Rocco's birthday is uh, other than a rock star, who's the most interesting person you've ever met? For me, either of you, you are both of you. Yeah. Right off. It would probably be a, a jazz musician called Horace silver. Jazz musicians don't count as rock stars. Good answer. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and Donald Fagan introduced me to him. Okay. What did he, who is, I don't know him. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's passed away. He's probably, uh, he passed away about 10 or 15 years ago. He's a, if you're into jazz at all, which I have been my whole life, I do a jazz radio show out of Hawaii. Sure. And, um, you know, he, anybody in jazz knows who Horace Silver is. He wrote a song called song for my father. That's a main, that's a, unbelievable song and stuff and i cool. I, introduced him to him. I was introduced to him by uh donald fagan i'll treat myself okay chris got anybody uh that isn't a pop star or because uh yeah uh, that is not was was his no, question yeah right? marion albright who okay. passed away obviously but um i was doing a show um uh roger waters was doing um one of his um shows for the um, Wounded Warrior um, in Washington. And her and her daughter came to the show. So I sat, I was sat while we were sound checking uh, just prior to the show and actually just sat and talked to her in the, um, in the audience. And she was an amazing lady, you know, just like, you know, just the persona and the presence uh, of her was, was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So I would think that's the person for me. All right, I mean, his second one. Of others, but she's the one that immediately springs to mind. The second one's a goodie. Uh, what is the last place that you would go back to? Because everybody always always like, oh, the best places I've been. What's the very last place either of you would want to go back to? 
If you're talking about this tour I'm on at the moment, I'm probably <laughs> probably thinking Kansas City, where we we played the baseball stadium, and it was uh, about I don't know, it was way over a hundred degrees, and it was just, you know, I mean these places are not built for what we do, so you know you you have to adapt and what have you, but yeah, that was pretty horrendous. But no, I mean um, it's it was fine, but. Um, where else? Um, hmm. There's a, probably a few countries I would like to go back to. Um, but, um, no, I think I'm, most places are okay. I don't really uh, have have issues. Probably on the day I have an issue and then, you know, it sort of blends into insignificant because you go somewhere else and think, God, I thought that was bad, but this place is even worse. <laughs> um, you know, um, it's... You just got to bite the bullet and get on with it. You know, I mean, that's what we do. You know, I mean, we're a moving city, you know, with with the number of people and trucks and buses and everything. And, you know, you literally carry everything barring the kitchen. Well, in fact, we do carry the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. You got I'm any sure fun ones, Richard? <laughs> um, you know, all the outdoor gigs in Florida... You know, I mean, it's just uh, every musician that I've worked with, and once they come off the stage in in Florida and it's an outdoor gig, they are just just done. I mean, spent. I remember one time we were doing a festival in Florida, and it was in the middle of the summer with the Eagles, and uh, Bernie Ledden came off the stage, you know, came off the stage, you know, during the encore. And he went right over to the ice bucket and just put his head in it. <laughs> you know, but yeah, those outdoor gigs in Florida are killers. Yeah. Well, and they're really boring too. <laughs> How did the, Des- the Desperado photo shoot? So why did they decide to put the crew in it? And then who caught, who like set you guys up with all the cool clothes and everything? It was a fun day or. Yeah, it was a fun day. It was a really fun day. We took, <laughs> We smoked a lot of pot. We took peyote. There was tequila involved. Um, all that. It was probably Glenn, Glenn and Don. You say the you say the music industry has changed, Chris. <laughs> you imagine today? Yes, Here's the deal. I brought the peyote. I mean, anyway. yeah, well, it has now. I mean, back yeah. in those days. I mean, like I say, I don't know. There was no life expectancy yeah. to it. No. I mean, back. You know, I can remember playing places like the Marquee in London before it had an alcohol license and, it, you know, oh. Coca-Cola or whatever. But, you know, you there was no lighting companies, sound companies, any of that. That's where I'm saying it's changed. But it, it was just you drive out in the morning and go, I'm, I'm saying in England, we drive up to Newcastle, get there, I don't know, half past six, set the gear up, the band are going half past seven, play for whatever, an hour or depending on what other bands were on. We'd play, put the stuff back in and drive all the way back to London. And then the next day you might have been playing like 20 miles down the road and you'd drive all the way back up again. There was no staying in hotels or anything like that because there wasn't the money. Around. What you're trying to get at is that you needed the drugs to survive. Yes. <laughs> so that, that's what, was true. what happened is we had, 
Well, there was the management was there. John Hartman. We had Glenn Johns. We had the art directors, and they were all involved as well. We had all gone the day before down the Western Costume. Oh yeah, and just got suited up. Uh-huh. And the whole thing was they weren't sure why they were shooting, but they wanted to have Jackson and JD there as more or less the criminals or the the guys that got shot. And uh, you know, it was just. We were just playing cowboy, just like you did when you were a little kid. Totally. So we made it through with all of the drugs and everything. Was it was it was it actually pretty well? Everything went pretty smoothly. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, basically, it was uh, Henry Diltz and uh, Gary Burton that were kind of saying, "Okay, let's try this. You guys write in, and you guys be shooting at them." And then they'd go, "Okay, let's try this one." In different shots, they would try, and then they wanted the one with all the guys dead and us behind them. And that was our, that was Glenn Johns, a producer, like I said, who actually got me the Eagles gig. Oh. Yeah, because I was, we're, I was in London with the Faces, and we were recording an album with Glenn at Olympic, and he went away for a while to see some band in, in Aspen, and then he came back and they finished up the album. And then about four or five months, well, six months later, I decided to move back to the California and I was over there doing a few gigs and Glenn called me up and says, Hey, get in touch with Elliot Roberts. That band needs a road manager. I told him you're the guy. So I went in there and met with Elliot and David and they said, okay, yeah. It's so funny. Cause when I got the job, I had, I was doing faces tours in America. Yeah. And we were going to end on June the 10th. And I says, well, when does your tour start? And they go, June the 5th. And I go, oh, I can't do it. I can, you know, I won't be able to do it. Elliot and David both looked at me and says, don't worry. We'll get him through the first five days. You just catch up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Elliot, you know, Elliot really well. (laughs) I I know you joined the uh, Pink Floyd camp after Sid Barrett, but did you ever meet Sid Barrett, Chris? Or did you see him play? Sid Sid was in the, well, had left, but hadn't left. He used to periodic dave was obviously in the band but um uh sid would appear you know um uh, from time to time and then he obviously went his went his own way but um yeah so you I say mean, appear like he'd show up a couple at a gig here and there um i'm trying to remember that crikey i'm gonna say yes but I couldn't swear to it. He, he, I know he turned up at the studio once when we were doing something. But, I mean, in those days, we used to do albums all over the place. I mean, did He up- showed up at Wish You Were Here, am I right? I think I was right. Yeah. He showed up at Wish You Were Here, I think, isn't it? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> that's the unfortunate thing of getting older. You know, you, the things blend in and you, you get... Well, the very- story goes I, I was that they didn't recognize him. That's right. I wonder who he was. Yeah, that was it. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, it was quite strange, you know, I mean, obviously, as he left and, and everything, he was he was in a, a different place to the to the rest of the band. And then, you know, Dave came in and that. But we did we did albums all over the place. I mean, we did Obscure by Clouds out in in um, France at the Chateau and uh we were there for months doing that. And we used to, um, you know, you get bored, don't you? Because you're, you're just out in the wilderness. So the guys 
would bet on all sorts of things. So that one day, I used to eat raw potato, or I still eat raw potato. And I think it was Roger or something turned around and went, I bet you couldn't eat a stone of raw potato, which is 14 pounds. And I went, I bet I could. (laughs) In how long of a time period? Just eat it. Well, sit and eat. Put it all in. One sitting, 14 pounds of potatoes? Heavy, let me tell you. Oof. Anyway, we we did that, and it was a guy called Mick Kleczynski that was working for us, and he he said, "Well, I bet I can eat. I can't even remember now. Fried eggs. It was a bit you, like you ate the fourteen pounds of potato. I think I got pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And there was then it was all you know. Everybody was betting on things like that. It used to happen quite regularly. I remember another time we were out. Um, you must have been plugged up for weeks. No. No, I eat all raw vegetables. I eat all vegetables raw. Sprouts, whatever it may be. Maybe that's my longevity. Maybe eating all this to sort of... The secret to success. <laughs> secret, secret to be still on the road. Um, we did a thing. We were playing a place... In, outside of Phoenix called Big Sur, which was the first. Big Sur is in California. Is it in California? Yeah, it's right by the it, ocean. It's a beautiful place. No, no, not Big Sur. Big Surf, this was. Oh, oh sorry. It, it was a place. Was, yeah. You know which one I'm talking about. It was the first place that they made um, a manual like wave machine so it had like a big wall at one end and it was basically like flushing a toilet it pushed the water down hit a wall and create waves so we were doing we were doing a show out there and we were all staying in a holiday inn so you know how long this is ago because i mean you probably this is with floyd or who's this with pardon who's this with pink floyd floyd okay yeah so we're all out there And it was one of those, we're all having breakfast, and there was a couple of motorbikes outside. And I don't know how these things used to crop up. Somebody would go, I bet you wouldn't drive that motorbike in here. And, you know, then all of a sudden, money's coming out. And all of a sudden, Dave disappears, comes roaring in in this motorbike into into the breakfast room at this Holiday Inn, stalls it in the middle of the restaurant, and then drives out. And, you know, it was, they were just mad times. Like I say, there was, um, there was no longevity to anything. So everybody sort of lived for today. Um, But yeah, that was in a real early days because at at that time, there was myself, a guy called Peter Watts, who. He died um, young, right? I read he died at like 30. yeah. Yeah. But his. I've got a picture somewhere of his daughter, which is Naomi Watts, the actress oh, who no lives there. Yeah, that's his oh. daughter. And and he also uh, he also spoke on uh, the Dark Side album. He was one of the uh, voices. Uh, yeah, he. Yeah, as I remember, very little bit. But the the girl, his girlfriend at that time was a girl called Puddy. And when you hear somebody saying he was cruising for a bruising, um, is her. So. Uh, yeah, but Peter, yeah, Peter, Peter passed away pretty young. Yeah, uh, sad. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, I mean, there were some real characters. I mean, Roger the Hat. Uh, you know, they were just, I don't know, people. That 
for me now in the business, there isn't the characters. I suppose because I'm older now and, you mm. know, it's it's very, like I say, money-orientated. Money mm. Um as you as you were telling me about you know the people who you you had on the other day other day that were young people, the younger people that are coming. Uh, in, David Sparrow, Richard. Was it? Yeah, uh-huh. they don't. I don't know. They have no communication skills. They're great at texting, sending emails, and that. Yeah, it wasn't David Sparrow. David, I don't. Do you know David Sparrow? It was yeah. a joke. <laughs> no, uh, David Sparrow, big manager, Cat Stevens, yes. and. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Joe Walsh and uh, right. yeah, no, I know who he is. Okay, yeah, no, it was these. It was these younger people, and uh, Chris called me to say hi, and I'm like, why are these damn people trying to interview him? They just don't speak. I'm like, I don't know what to do, Chris. And he's like, well, oh. I think what made me laugh was when you said about Van Halen, they'd never heard of him. Oh, it was Joni Mitchell. Remember, they had never heard of yeah, oh, Joni yeah, Mitchell and Van Halen. Yeah, they. Yeah. I was like, oh God, I don't even know where. But, um, that's what I find now is nobody talks <laughs> you know they all it was sit tough there, <laughs> you know this all the time and i i don't know i was always i like to talk to people on a phone so speaking of that so speaking of this is actually interesting all right so because yeah. of your you speaking on the dark side album yeah I, I, you would be one of the most heard voices in history <laughs> yeah i'm swearing you would be <laughs> So what it says here, uh, Dark Side of the Moon is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for being on the charts longer than any other album in history. (laughs) I read they recorded the crew and even Paul McCartney, um, but they didn't use Paul McCartney, obviously. So I think what you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is I've been mad for fucking years, absolutely years. I've been over the edge for yonks. Works, working with bands so long. I mean, crikey. If that is what you say exactly, it is funny. It's actually, I've been mad for fucking years, over the edge for yonks, working with too many bands. And it's the truest statement I've ever made. I mean, at the time, you know, Roger just gave us these questions to answer. And one was, do you think you're mad? The other was, when was the last time you had a fight? Um what do you think Dark Side of the Moon is? And, you know, there was a load of uh, other questions. So the people out, out of... McCartney was in the next studio with Wings, and the two you get, the two Scottish uh, people on it, is, uh, was the drummer and his wife out, out of Wings, where they're going, I don't know, I was really drunk at the time, and they'd had a domestic... And that's what <laughs> um, we had the doorman from Abbey Road. Um, there was, uh, like I said, this guy called Roger the Hat, who um, used to work for a band called Love Affair uh, in England. And, um, you know, it was, he was just a, well, actually, where I used to um, have, an, have a flat. He uh, he had one below me, so you know we see quite a lot of him, and uh, so he just happened to come to the studio that day. And Roger goes, "Ah, whoosh, have you in the in the studio?" But it was um, um, it was great. But I mean, at the time, you don't think about it; you just do it and everything like that. To to think where it is now, and I've had I've had a few times where I've had weird sort of situations this was years and years ago when it first sort of came 
came out. I was doing some laundry somewhere in America, and I was in a laundry. That was the only time he did laundry in America, by the way, Richard. Oh, right. <laughs> the first and last time. <laughs> so putting, I'm in the machine like that. And somebody said, and I went, absolutely. And this girl turned around, and she went, Gosh, she said, you just sound like the guy on Pink Floyd's album, Dark Side of the Moon. And I looked at her and I thought, how do you tell somebody that is me? Because they're never going to believe in a million years, you know. But, yeah, I've had a few sort of situations like that. And um, um, funny enough, when Richard and me last worked with Steely Dan, or when I was working with Richard, we were, we went over to England for two weeks. And where we... Uh, um, where we were rehearsing in Glasgow, there was this band rehearsing in the next studio. And I'm thinking, God, and it would do play an opening Floyd song. So I was just like laughing to myself. And then obviously somebody told them who yeah. I was. So if you, when you ever put my name in and Pink Floyd, there's an actual picture of this, this uh, cover band from Glasgow. And they were super nice people. So they wanted a picture with me and everything, but um What's it's, your favorite Floyd albums or favorite album, each of you guys? What would your favorite Floyd album be? Oh, flip it, Nick. Um, th- there's, um, I mean, single-wise, Comfortably Numb. I think it's unbelievable. Unbelievable song. I, I mean, I've loved them all. I-, I mean, I have a real diverse like of music, whether it be from... Um, classical right through you know I went the other week um, to see The Weekend. oh yeah uh, phenomenal show absolutely mm. if you know anybody out there I recommend going to see it he's fantastic it's just him and it is for two hours amazing show the 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 the, the whole production everything is excellent excellent so I have a blessed time so, Richard, what was it that uh, about Tom Petty that spellbound you in the beginning? Uh, um, from listening to that Parnelli Awards thing, it had said that uh, it, by the way they said it, you were like transfixed. You you were I'm going to oh, work yeah. with these guys. Uh, I, I the obvious answer is I mean they they were amazing. <laughs> but uh, what what made you uh, stop all and and go to Tom Petty? You know. I was working in a management company for that during that time. And I had gone to, we had man, we managed a band in Germany and they were recording in Hamburg. And I was over there just calling back to the studio and sending tapes back to LA. Uh, you know, this just, is when you were working at SIR or no, this is when I was working with caribou management. Okay. And Jim Gursio, I don't know if you know who he is. He was a producer. Anyhow, he did care. He had Caribou Studios up in uh, uh, Colorado. Okay. Yeah, I was working with him. We were, he managed uh, the Beach Boys, Chicago, and a couple local uh, Chicago acts from Chicago. Okay. So I was booking tours and going out and that. And uh, we managed this band in Germany, and I was over there. And then one day in the studio, the publicist came to me and goes, Hey, I'm having a party tonight because they're. They're going to broadcast uh, satellite live for the first time across Europe, a gig called Rock Palace that I know Chris has done. I've done it in Dusseldorf. So I said, yeah, I'll go there. So they had a bunch of great bands on there. Uh, Little Feet was on there. 
bunch of good English bands, you know. And all of a sudden, this band came on. And also, I don't know why, but they caught my eye. And I thought, I look, first I looked at the amps, and I went, well, they got all the right amps. Then I looked at the guitars, and I went, they got all the right guitars. And I asked the uh, guy next to me, I says, who are, you, who are these guys? They go, oh, it's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And my first, my first answer was, are, I mean, my first question was, are they English? And he said, no, they're an American band. They're from Gainesville, Florida. So then the next day I called up the man, I called up Gersio and we were talking about the band where I was working, which was called Lake, about how quickly they could get it done so they could get it out. And I told him about what I'd seen the night before, and it was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And he said to me, he said, uh, yeah, they're over at Shelter. Denny Cordell's got them. He goes, he's probably going to rape them. And I said, they're really good. You should, you know, if you ever got a chance, you know, they're the guys, you know. And so I called a good friend of mine who's a promoter in Los Angeles, Larry Vallon, and said, I just got, saw this band on TV called Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. You got anything for me? He goes, yeah, in a couple of months, they're opening up a show in San Bernardino for this uh, local Southern California band called Redbone that oh, were yeah. Indian guys. Sure. They were good. Yeah, they anyway, were really good. Yeah. Um, they, I called Larry after that, after that gig. I called him and said, hey, how was that gig? And he goes, they're really good. He says, as a matter of fact, Redbone don't want them to open up for them anymore. <laughs> so then i asked i asked larry i said well who's their manager and he goes there's a singles guy named tony dimitriatis and i went huh i says where does he work out of he goes i think he works out of his car or his house one of the two you know i don't think he's got an office i went oh okay so then about two months later larry valen called me up because i had done a bunch of work for elliot roberts and the eagles and a bunch of his act like neil and all those guys and Larry called me up. He goes, hey, I just heard Tony Dimitriotis went into Elliot, Elliot's office. He brought Tom Petty into that office. So I immediately gave Elliot a call. He says, hey, I got to come in and meet this guy, Tony Dimitriotis. He says, yeah. So then I went in and met him. And we were talking. He sat down. And I said, hey, I saw your band in England. You got a great little band. I says, you know, I know you're in, you're in trouble right now because you're having a dispute with your record company about they sold you to MCA and you were on shelter and the whole thing is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I says, well, if you guys work, why don't you call me? First words out of his mouth. We can't afford you. <laughs> That's Tony. I like Tony. First words out of his mouth. We can't afford you. And at that time, I was working with the new barbarians. So I said, I'll tell you what. Call me when you can. I says, why don't I says, here. I says, well, let me set up some tickets for the band and you to come to see the barbarians. And he said, Okay. So I said, I'll put the band tickets at the box office. So you and Tom come to the tunnel. So I put the envelope back there, had the guard at the tunnel say, I told him, listen, as soon as these guys come, you call me and tell me they're here. He said, okay. So he called me. He goes, your guys are here. They're walking down the tunnel. So I walked up the tunnel to meet him. And I, hi, how you doing, Tom? Glad to meet you. Hi, Tony. Everything good? So we walked him back down the tunnel down around with the corridors where the dressing room was, right into the dressing room, and Keith and Woody were there. And I told Keith and Woody, hey, I'm bringing Tom Petty. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's got a great album, you know. So I brought him in. I walked him in. I said, hey, Tom Petty, meet Keith Richards, meet Ron Wood. 
And, you know, I, I, Tony was next to me. I said, you know what? Me and you don't belong here, man. These guys can get along without us, you know? So he, we walked out and we're walking down the corridor and he goes, you really want this gig, don't you? And I said, yep, I do. Then he called me back and he offered me next to nothing. <laughs> I, just, you know, I told him, I told him in a while. And this is what got me. Me and Tony are still friends to this day. As a matter of fact, I had lunch with him yesterday. Oh, great. And, uh, I said to him, I says, okay, you throw 50 bucks on there. You don't ever tell anybody what you paid me. And I'm sure you'll pay me when I'm worth, when you guys get big enough. He goes, really? And I said, yeah. And we did a handshake and that was the only time we did it. That's great. Yeah. And I remember one time when I, cause I was, there was no accountants in. So I was doing the box office and everything. So when it was time to get raises. I would go, Tony, I need this. Now you guys are making this much. Finally, I went, you know, you got to step up. You got to step it up to this much. And he said, well, I got to talk to Tom. I said, okay. So he calls me back like three minutes later. I said, you talked to Tom? He goes, yeah. And he said, what do you say? He goes, give Richard anything he wants. Oh, nice. So I knew that I was going to be there for a while. Did you introduce him to Jeff Lynn too, or no? No, 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 no. That, that, George Harrison introduced him to that. And Chris, you may have been there. It was a gig we did in um, in uh, Birmingham, I think, where we had trouble with the dressing rooms and shit. George was recording his album with Jeff near there. And George liked Tom. So he came to the gig and he brought Jeff. And that's where Jeff and George met. Jeff and Jeff and Tom met. That was before the Wilburys. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, neat connection stuff. You know, it's it's great to think where you can introduce guy A to guy B. Well, that could change so much. Well, you know, it's funny because you brought me in with with Tom. So yeah, I, I mean, I spent twenty two years there, so uh, I was. Very you know, busy. I don't know if you remember this, but when Craig Fruin, you were working with Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. And Craig Fruin called me up and wanted me to wanted me to do it. And one of the things to entice, he goes, I got Chris Adamson on here. And I went, well, then I'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) That's how he enticed me out of working with Lenny. And I forgot to put him on my list. (laughs) What's your guys' favorite Petty album? Oh, Oh, God. I like Long After Dark. I like Wildflowers, too. So I'm Wildflowers, and it's so later. I feel lame to say it, but it's an album you can listen to again and again and again and again and again yes. and just keep loving it. You just don't even know you're on the fourth spin. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a good Great. one. No, we, uh, I mean, for me, my uh, memory with, with Tom will always be the last show we did at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, yeah. My favorite Tom Petty song is Breakdown. And he very rarely played it. So um, I said at the last show, I said, Tom, I said, come on, just for me tonight, play it. Nah, 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 nah. And what he used to do was he'd get us Richard for a set list of the last time we played that particular venue. And then he'd change songs because, you know, he was very meticulous about what we played and like that. So... Um, it was the last show, and then halfway through the show, he said, okay, we're going to do something different now. He said, I don't normally do this, but he said, one of my guys, you know, has asked me, 
And um, that was it. Yeah, it's killer. Yeah. You know, it's funny because Chris used to leave us occasionally to go do another gig. You know, once we'd get set up, he'd be all, he'd go somewhere to do another gig. And what the crew would do is they would get a, they would get a set list, not a set list that we did, a set, a set list, you know, after the gig and they'd put a breakdown on it and they'd take a photo of it and say, Chris, see what you missed? <laughs> every time, every time, I go, oh shit! And he wouldn't know for like days or weeks after that. They did it, <laughs> yeah, all the time. But no, it was it was amazing to me because he played it that night. My wife was right in the middle block. She filmed it and recorded it, and you know it was magical. Yeah. And then um, I think I've probably got the last picture of Tom and the band when they came off for an encore, because they came off and they were fooling about off on um, stage right. And I took a picture of them all, like, playing around. And I've always remember, you know, Tom came off stage and I shook his hand and I said, pleasure as always, Tom. And he went, you know, great and everything like that. And I said, don't you get any fucking ideas about retiring? He said, nah. He said, I'm going to go off and spend a few weeks with my granddaughter. And uh, and I went, good. And he said, don't worry. We're out next year doing Wallflowers. And I went, okay, great. I just want you to hear because I didn't want you going to getting a message saying that you were going to retire. Uh, and that was uh, the last time I spoke to him. Yeah. You know, another thing that happened in that that those last Hollywood Bowl gigs, uh, Jeff Lynn and Joe Walsh came down to one of the shows and Mike Campbell had been playing. He didn't take this guitar. He, he, he bought this guitar for over $200,000. Wow. He didn't take it on the road, but he. That's what it. Chris makes like a week. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. So he took it on the road. He used it in the studio. He writes songs with it, but he brought it to the Hollywood Bowl and before they went on, uh, Mike wanted to show Joe the guitar. Hey, look at this. And Joe's going, oh, this is very nice. You know, it's a great guitar and everything. And so he went and played the gig. And after the gig, during the encore, they're all goofing around, getting ready to go back on. And Joe and Jeff come over. And Joe goes over to Mike, puts his arm around him. He goes, kid, the guitar's a monster. I'll never forget that. It might just beam from ear to ear. All right. You got satisfaction <laughs> from Joe, who's just a wonderful man, I'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of my friends have children now. My friend's daughter uh, was in fifth grade when I started this podcast. And so she said, with great conviction, I might add, I should ask every guest when you first felt famous. So I ask each of you, when did you first feel famous? If you don't think you're famous or you don't want to go through the fame route, that's totally okay. I don't care if you feel you're famous or not. But when was there then a moment in your career that was a pivotal change? It was a, a kernel in time for you. What would each of you choose as your moment? Oh, crikey. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, one, I don't think I'm famous. Well, there's two different ways. You possibly think I'm famous because of what I've I've done. I don't 
I'm very proud of what I've done, but I, um, it's, I love what I do, and Rich is the same. And as long as I've got my health and, you know, somebody wants me, uh, you know, I'm not going to chase work. You know, I, you know, just like working with, you know, nice people and what have you. Uh, but as long and as I still did the Def Leppard Motley Crue tour. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Def Leppard, amazing. Uh, yeah. It's actually Rick. So today is the anniversary of Rick Allen's first show back after his uh, accident. Hmm. But they are, you see, the thing is with, with, with Leopard is when I got to join them, um, I first show I did with them, crikey, six years ago. So, and I came in halfway through a tour and we start, uh, my first show was um, a baseball stadium in Atlanta and I got brought in and Joe was on the bus. So I walk on the bus get introduced to him. I went, how you doing, mate? And he went, where the fuck are you from? I said, oh. And he went, Mick Ronson country. I said, yeah, that's who I started in the business with. And then we sat for about three hours and cast because Hull is right next to Sheffield, where Joe's from. So we talk the same language, if you know what I mean. We, You just connect. And, um, you know, just got on from there like a house on fire. And, um, yeah, it's, they're great people. They're very uh, understanding. They get it. You know, when I, anything production-wise, I'll say to them, right, we need to sit down, have a meeting. And they go, Joe, go, how about now? I'll go, great. So there'll be all the band there, Mike Kobayashi, who manages. We all sit down, throw out whatever questions. I mean, this specifically was because we did a residency in Vegas. So there was quite a lot of work to be put together to, to put that into um, a theatre. You know, we put like a stadium show into a theatre. Uh, and we sat down, went from A to Z, you know, it was, we went through everything and, um, and got, you know, literally walked away and everybody had their answer, which is great. As, as Richie will tell you, with some artists, trying to get answers out of them about this, that, and the other. Uh, And then, you know, to get the costings and everything else takes a long time. Well, you know, with lots of these companies, if you're getting stuff built, you know, and especially now because the business has changed in the fact there isn't the people around that there used to be. They've gone. They've Where they've gone, I don't know. But whether it's local stagehands, you know, lighting crew, sound crew, truck drivers, bus drivers, they aren't there anymore. You know, COVID changed. Oh, it, it changed the business in a big, big way. Big, big way. I don't know. It's When you say famous, I never really felt famous. Um, uh, kind of a turning point. I've always had the... Uh, uh, I got a lot of management skills from my dad, who was, uh, he worked in a factory and built cars, but basically he was a baseball coach. He coached youth baseball from as I was five or six. He was already, he already had two teams, a 12 year old and under team and an American Legion team, which is 16, 17 and 18. So I just follow him around and see how he deal with different people, different guys. And the one thing that I learned from him and I, the realization came when I moved to London and started working with Glenn Johns 
And the, the tip that I've always gone by and still go by, if you want to get respect from some, and it's not so much fame, it's respect. Mm. And if you, in order to get respect, you have to give it first. And I think when I started working with Glenn in the studio, he kind of saw that I was respecting what I was, you know, the people that I was respecting, you know, dealing. I had respect for them and him as well. And I remember after I'd been in London for about a year, a little over a year, I was moving back to the States and I was seriously thinking about going into a studio and working in a studio because I knew Glenn had um, ties with A&M with Moss and Alpert and those guys, because I know he he was tight with those guys. And I figured, you know, he might be able to help me out. And one night before I was leaving, I said to him, we got pretty close because, you know, you're the first guy there with him and you're the last guy to leave with him. And I said to him, I said, you know, I'm going to go back to the States and I'm thinking I'm going back, going to go in the studio. I was wondering if you could give me a hand. He goes, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, you know, I think he goes, he goes, these guys, he goes, and he, he had such a, a disdain for some people, especially musicians at the time. He goes, for some reason, these knuckleheads listen to you. He goes, you're good at what you do. You should keep doing this. And I went, hmm, okay. So then that's kind of when I realized, you know, maybe I got a future in this thing. Maybe I can do it. Yeah. And, and lo and behold, here we are 51 years later. That's great. Yeah, Yeah, I think mine was a similar. I suppose at some point I got the same sort of uh, transition. You suddenly realize that I could make a, a, you know, make a career out of it. You know, like I say, when we all started, it was it was more your entertainment. I enjoyed what I was doing, but it was it was sort of entertainment. You know, you'd have a drink, whatever. Yeah. Uh, just just did that but then all of a sudden it it became a business and it came a business very quickly overnight and uh, I think then I realized I you know I could I've said to many people if you screw your loaf you know you can make a good career out of this and make a living because I can always remember people saying to me well when are you gonna get a real job oh yeah yeah (laughs) when are you gonna get a real job and I and up to obviously uh, COVID happening, I thought, you know, nothing could stop the sort of entertainment business, whether it be music and everything that goes on shows and everything like that. And when COVID came along, it was really funny because Marty Harm rang me and he goes, Chris, he said, have you ever experienced anything like this? And I said, no, not since the war. And, you know, I was cracking a joke with him and uh, he went, I can't believe it. He said, it's not like you've lost a job and you can go and find another one. I mean, it just stopped overnight. Yeah. yeah. Completely. And once I'd come to terms with that, the fact that there was no point in stressing about the business or whatever, because it wasn't there. There was nothing there. I couldn't ring up and go, hey, can I get a job? Because everything had shut down. I'd I'd just finished uh, in England. I was doing a, a Peter Green tribute for Mick Fleetwood. We did filmed and everything there. 
And my wife turned around to me and she said, maybe this is your swan song. Because the actual show, everybody on it, I'd worked for, from Dave Gilmore, Townsend. Um, there was um, uh, John Mayle, Mick, Christine. I mean, it was, you know, everybody, you know, nearly enough in the, in the music business. And I thought, well, maybe that is it. Maybe that's that's the thing. But... You know, you just, um, I just sat there and I, and it was quite a calming sort of time because I, I didn't worry because I thought there's no point in worrying. There's nothing me worrying about. It's going to change anything at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say, I'm very happy everything's come back. And it's, you know, it went from naught to 60 in 10 minutes. You know, I mean, it, it, overnight, vroomf, everything, everybody's touring, everybody's working and thank goodness and everybody's you know excited to go to shows again and and that to me that's my one of my buzzes is you know with this tour I'm on at the moment uh with Leopard and Motley and everything you know we're playing to 40,000 people a night and that buzz is when uh, we've got a, a video screen that goes up at the beginning of the show and the audience just, and that brings me out in goose pimples because I just think, you know, I've um, with uh, Robert Long, who's looks looks after Motley. You know, we've put all this together, and it's incredibly satisfying. And that the hunger for that is still there That's after cool. fifty odd years I've been doing this. You know, and uh, yeah. Because I mean, years did you do Fleetwood Mac, Richard? Uh, I did the European tour in. It was right after a Tom tour. It must have been because Marty couldn't do it. Yeah, and he called me up to go do it. Yeah. What was it like when Stevie and uh, Lindsay joined the band? Do you remember that, Chris? No, because I'd done. You know, when it was it was Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, then he became Fleetwood Mac. Then um, uh, Peter, you know, we were playing a place called Circus Krona in Munich and we had a day off after the, the show and he went off to a, a commune, but it wasn't like the usual commune where, you know, it was just they were all smoking dope and um, just, you know, just a, a, a sort of a commune. These were all very wealthy people and they were looking to exploit Peter and mm. came back a day later, a completely different person with, with some strange girl, a tape of this absolute gibberish guitar playing. And they given him a tab of acid and he was never, ever the same again. Mm. Never. And um, there was days he was there and Daisy wasn't. You know, we'd do shows and we'd come to the end of the show and the band, little, little, bump, and Peter would be in another world playing. And all the band, you know, everybody was sort of stood there going, oh. and then other days, he'd be right on the money. And uh, and uh, funny, um, he, the, um, oh, what's the guitarist's name in um, um, Metallica? has ended up with Peter's guitar, which he paid some fantastic amount of money for. 
But while he was playing this show we did in England, he got to see Peter. Peter didn't come to the show. He was very introvert. You know, he didn't want to be out or anything like that. I mean, when he first left the band, he grew all his fingernails, so he couldn't play the guitar. Mm. Uh, his guitars ended up with Gary Moore and uh, until Gary passed away. And then, you know, I don't know exactly where they all went. But that show was the first time I'd heard that guitar played since Peter had played it. And um, it, they did Green Man Alishi and um, that. And that guitar has a sound. Yeah. And I, if I didn't look at him, it was Peter. You know what I mean? I could see Peter play. But he had obviously left the band. And Christine joined, John's wife. Uh, she'd been in a band uh, called Chicken Shack, Stan Webb's Chicken Shack. She joined and obviously... We never had a keyboard player, but all of a sudden she came in and she played keyboard. So there was Danny Kerwin still, uh, Jeremy Spence, uh, Mick and John. So, you know, she came in and we toured America. We did a tour of America um, with her in the band. And um, then it went, they suddenly decided to move to America. They uprooted and moved to America. Um there was a period, obviously, they went through varying guitarists and people who came in and out of the band till, till uh, Stevie and uh, Lindsay joined. I sort of came back when they were already back in the band. Got it. And, uh, and did, uh, did tours with them then. But, um, um, yeah, it, uh, yeah, there's been, uh, been some changes in there, but, um, it was just nice to uh, to go back in there again, and and the show, the Palladium that that uh, Mick put together, it was all you know, it was all original Fleetwood Mac stuff, and it was just nice. Dave Gilmore played Albatross on pedal steel, which was phenomenal. I mean, it's a PBS special, I think, uh, that it's out, but there's also a document. They also shot a documentary on it, you know, all the sort of behind the scenes things. So, um, yeah, but I really did think when I came back, you know, when I've, I did the show on the 26th of February, flew back to England, uh, sorry, flew back to America on the 27th, and then pff, the whole world fell apart. And I yeah. thought, hey, maybe this, you know, is, is the end. But I really didn't think, um, you know, to go back to the original point about, you know, getting a real job. I <laughs> probably the first time I actually thought about what I could do. What did uh, you guys think? So the first time you heard Desperado, Richard, what did you think? The first time you heard Landslide, what did you think, Chris? I mean, these monumental songs that. Oh you... yeah, I, I, I just fantastic. I mean, both Richard and me have been very lucky over the years with all the acts that we've worked with. They've all got classic. Hits. Actually, here's a good. So you did Dark Side for what? Well, it was almost a year before they released the album. They were playing it live. Yeah, we did it on the road for um, for a long, oh, a year, I would say. We did it. We did the first half of this show used to be set the controls, and it used to be all the early stuff. And then they'd have an intermission, and then the second half of the show used to be all Dark Side of the Moon, and it changed. You know, bits changed obviously through that before we went in the studio. Uh, to record it, but it's quite it's quite nice. I, I um, 
uh, well, the last time I saw Alan Parsons was at uh, getting the Parnelli Award. He was there getting an award as well. And we hadn't seen ourselves, uh, I hadn't seen him for a few years. The last time I saw him, he, he came to a, um, a uh, Steely Dan show. So he lived up in uh, Santa Barbara. So he mm-hmm. came He came to a show there because I, I you know, rang him up and he came down there. But, um, yeah, it's... Uh, there's loads of sort of stories from back there. Do you have how, any ones that stand up the wind-ups? I love wind-ups. Do you have any uh, wind-up stories from back and whenever? Oh, God. Back up <laughs> Wind-up story. Yeah, I mean, uh, God, let me think about that. You got any Richard off the top of your head? Mm. Wind-up stories. Oh, just just the, what we did to you was... Uh... <laughs> Breakdown. breakdown. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would do that. That was a wind-up. I'm, uh, I'm Southern accents. That song is beautiful, man. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think one of the the only time I can think of a wind-up just off the top of my head, we were playing um, um, at the oh uh, god in LA at the uh, it's not there now. What was the theater up? Um, where the adventure park is, where Harry Potter and all that's on. What's that place oh, called? Theater. Oh, the Universal? Universal Anthea. So I'm playing there, and there's uh, Richard's tour manager there. We had, um, uh, what's his name out with us, who was also working with us? He does Chris Isaac. Um, oh, oh, Casper. Doug Casper. So there was Doug Casper and Richard and everything. And the guy who ran the venue was uh, Rick. And he was a real prankster. Anyway, he knew I was into fishing. So he'd got a big paddling pool out with little rods with, you know, with kids' things with fish swimming around you and he hooked them out and they had the number. So I went, ha, ha, ha. So funny. So anyhow, I'm sat in the production office and we're getting ready, you know, do. And I kept asking him when I could meet the security officer, because I used to do the, you know, have the security meeting. So all of a sudden, these two guys walk in, two sort of. Oh, yeah, I remember. Two cops come in and they go, we're looking for Chris Adamson. So I go, yeah, I'm here. So he goes. Okay, I said, oh, you're my security, you know, the security officer. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I said, oh, good. So he said, uh, well, we need to ask you a few questions. So I sort of look at him a bit sort of strange. And he goes, yeah, he said, um, he said, have you got any ID? And I said, yeah. So I go to reach into my bag and the two of them, like, go for their guns. And I went, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. Whoa, you know, what's this all about? And what I didn't notice at the time, there was somebody behind them filming. So I'm there and he goes, well, um, we've got the, um, we've got the people here from immigration. And I went, what? (laughs) And he said, I want to check your ID and this. And so all of, you know, they said, right, we're going to have to handcuff you. And I went, you know, I was flabbergasted. So, okay, I'm not going to argue with two guys with guns, you know. So got my hands behind me back. They handcuffed me. And then they turned me around and they said, right, the people are outside. We need to go and 
you need to come and sit in the car and talk this through. So I went, okay. So we walk out the door and all these bastards were all stood in the corridor <laughs> and Rick had set it up with his two cops. So while they're handcuffing me, they're both turning around going and laughing at the camera. So videoed all this and put it out on YouTube, the bugger. And it was just a wind up. And I thought, God, I thought, yeah. yeah. Guy called Rick Merrill. He runs the. Um, what's he was the Hollywood thing? Bowl. Pardon? He was at the Hollywood Bowl for a while. No, no, no. Was he? Not yeah. Rick Stewart. Rick Rick Merrill. Rick. Oh. How? Yeah. Rick runs the. Um, what's the theater downtown in LA? Wilch, yeah. He was the, runs the Wilton. Anyway, when I first met him, he was my lighting guy with with uh, Stevie Wonder. Wow. And he used to be on the internet going, what song is this? I said, didn't you get a set list? <laughs> well, of course, Stevie, Stevie, you don't get a set list with Stevie Wonder. It depends whether he plays an hour or five hours, you know. He just plays whatever he feels, you know. So Rick was doing lights and it was a nightmare. And I used to wind him up. So he got his own back on me in the end. <laughs> what was the Frank Sinatra link? I did his first farewell tour and he came over to England and we did, um, I think it was either three shows or four shows at the Albert Hall and the same at the Festival Hall. And uh, he came over and, you know, it was in the early days, uh, real early days. So I got given, he had two gold SM58 microphones engraved with his name. I slept with them under my pillow. I was so shit scared of somebody stealing or me losing it. These things never left my side all the time. When I was walking around, I'd have them in a bag. I was petrified of losing them. And um, I always remember one night I got a rollicking off him because I hadn't washed the mic cable. You know, he got a bit of dust on his hand. But he was the... Ultra, ultra professional. He, there'd be never anybody like him again. I mean, he was a, a one-off phenomena. But, uh, yeah, we did uh, shows at the Festival Hall and the Alba Hall. But, obviously, because it was his first sort of farewell tour, the front rows, it was like a who's who of the film industry, uh, you know, anybody you could think of. I mean, if the PA had fallen down, the stock market would have ground to a halt. You know, it was one of those. I can remember one of the shows at the Festival Hall. Clint Eastwood was there. So he was sat out in the audience and he got up. And how he walks in movies is how he actually walks. You know, I mean, that sort of, dr not droll, but move. And I can he remember. got it down. He did the photo shoot. I can remember stood on the side of the stage watching people and they're all going. And by the time they'd realised it was him, obviously it was gone. But they, yeah, there was loads of that, you know, all all loads of those famous Hollywood um, film stars were there, you know, because Royal Albert Hall's a prestigious venue. But he was phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. I, I mean, um, you know, it was a, a you know, real highlight, you know, one of my highlights. I've, as You know, I've had m many, many, many highlights in the business, but that's definitely... Yeah, but it's Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yeah. That was definitely a, 
a high point. What, um, Richard, Olivia Newton-John, just because she's in the news now and her passing is so, that's so sad. But any great stories with Olivia Newton-John? You know, she was just, they had a good band. Um, she was just the nicest person in the world. Yeah. You know, putting her on stage, she was always very, she was very professional too. She was always ready to go, um, whether it be sound check or the gig. She was just the sweetest person, I'll tell you. She she had dinners for the band and the crew on days off, and she'd participate in them. And it was just, uh, it was a pleasure to work for her, to be quite honest with her. Yeah. Different from the music I usually worked with, but, you know, she was a great person. I'll tell you, I had no, no particular, oh, let me think. Uh, she had a lot of security. She had some security that was pretty uptight. But other than that, was, what about Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan. Wow. What a guy. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed working with Bob. Um, it was, uh, let's see. There was one time when Bob was, we were playing, it was Halloween. And we were playing a gig in uh, Chicago at the Airy Crown Theater. And it was the G.E. Smith band at the time. And uh, that was a time when Bob, for we had toured Europe and we were back in the States. And the only thing he wore all the time was, was boots, a pair of jeans, a gray sweatshirt, a baseball hat. And with his hood up, you know, a hoodie with it like that and sunglasses. That was all he wore on stage coming to the gig. That was his gig. So GE comes over to me and goes, hey, let's all get the band. Let's all get the whole crew in sweatshirts, baseball hats, and shades. And I said, you know, I don't know if that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, because Bob was always the last one there. So we went out and got everybody. I didn't do it because I had to go meet him at the door. So... I went and got him and we come in and we walk to the stage and all of a sudden he kind of looks around. He doesn't say a word. He just goes up on stage. does a, And the band's dressed like this too. <laughs> Everybody. The guy that hands him a guitar, the monitor mixer, the front of house guys, they've all got this on. So, um, you know, he does the sound check in about 30, 40 minutes. And I'm walking him back to the dressing room, and he's with his assistant, Victor Maymutis, at the time. And I get to the dressing room. I go, You're, this is your dressing room, dude. And he looks at me. He goes, hey, Richard. I said, yeah. And he goes, tell those guys I want my clothes back after this is over, huh? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. The other good one of Bob is uh, <laughs> we were playing Radio City Music Hall, and George happened to come to the gig. And I realized really early that George was one of the few people that was not intimidated by Bob whatsoever. Not whatsoever. Bob was more intimidated with George than George was of Bob. George was just that kind of that sort. And George spoke his mind. He was very, very candid. So he's up in the dressing room. So I go up there. And what had happened is their manager, Kramer, had had a few threats at the office 
So besides our regular security, because we had Callahan, Jim Callahan at the time, mm-hmm. we had these suits come in with these kind of, you know, hey, we're coming down the stairs now and that stuff. I said, okay. So I go up and get Bob to Guran. The band's downstairs. We're ready to go. And George is in there and they're talking. And so at the elevator, it's open and there's a suit in there. So me and Callahan walk to the elevator and Bob and George get in the elevator. So we're going downstairs and the guy goes, okay, we're on our way down now. So here's the thing. So George asks, so what's with the suits? And he goes, oh, Kramer had some threats and, uh, you know, we want, Kramer wanted to add some extra people. So the door opens and we walk out. And as we're walking out, I look back and George has his arm around Bob. And he says, Bob, there's nobody I'd rather be assassinated with than you. <laughs> That's, what did you say that for? That's great. George, George is the other guy. The, the other thing of George, he was such a such a kick in the ass, George. He was quiet, <laughs> but he had his ways. He we were doing this a 30 or 40 year uh Stone Bob was with Columbia Records. We're doing a big extravaganza at the at the garden with all these people coming and singing his songs, you know. And uh uh oh God, I forgot what I was gonna say now. Uh you're at the garden. We're at the garden. George. Oh yeah, and George, right. So George played as well. So George comes and he's got this box and he slams it on my desk and he goes, here, pass these out. I said, okay. So I go and they're t-shirts and on the t-shirt, it goes, Bob's million dollar bash. <laughs> so, so I said, you know, I got to ask Bob about this. So he goes, ah, I understand. So then he puts one on and just walks into Bob's dressing room. And Bob goes, what are you wearing that for? You know, it just, he could do that. You know, only he could do that. That's good stuff, though. It's pretty but, funny. Did Bob, you have any good uh, Pink Floyd wind-up stuff? Oh, crikey. Um, or the birds, even. Ooh. Um, I'm going to get the contemporary thoughts well, the, right the, on your mind. You know, this, this weird story, not so much a wind-up, but uh, Clarence um, always had a premonition of being killed by by alcohol was going to kill him. And we used to, you know, poo-poo it, shall we say. You know, no, 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 no. And he actually got um, killed by, he was coming out of the studio, putting his uh, guitar in the boot of the car, and a drunk woman ran into him and killed him. Um, But, uh, no, with them, they were great. We used to just play places dinky dawson and me used to do them back in the day um just up and down the west coast i mean um roger turned up did roger came to one of where did roger come did he came did he come to a tom show or a steely dan show richard tom shows yeah and uh, yeah roger McGinn. and i hadn't seen roger since back there him and his wife i hadn't seen since then so you know it was he recognized me, you know, because it's a long, long time ago, you know. And I had hair then. I mean, I used to have hair like a thatch cottage. Um, if you look on like if you go if you go on on my you know, the sites on me, shall I say, there's loads of old pictures of me with hair 
And and I've been sent stuff over the years. It's been great, you know, just getting stuff. And um, people go, is that you? And I go, yeah, you know, I did have hair. I was younger at one time, you know. <laughs> but no, I mean, oh, I don't know. There was um, wind-ups. Uh, I had one actually with Bob Dylan, funny enough. We did a we did a show in Edinburgh Playhouse with Bob and um his manager turned around to him because he always used to travel on a bus. He liked buses and he'd drive all over the place. Well it was he, he does get a few weirdos that follow him about. So um Kramer says to me, he goes, Have you got a car here? So I said, Well, yeah, you know. He said, Right. But it was Callan oh no, it wasn't Callahan at the time. I can't think who was doing security. Anyhow, it was Bob, security guy, Kramer, I think, and me in a car. And I'm driving him back to the hotel, so we sneak out an entrance. Bob's got the hood up, and we get in the car. Were you there, Richard, or were you in the car? I can't remember. Anyhow, we're going along Princess Street. So as you're going along there, on the left-hand side is Edinburgh Castle. So out of the blue... Bob starts talking to me, which is quite unusual because he's very quiet, doesn't say anything. So he's chatting to me and going, what's that up there, Chris? And I'm saying, Edinburgh Castle, Bob, and blah, blah, blah. Anyhow, the people that had been outside his bus had obviously seen us, so they were following us. So I get to this set of traffic lights, and it's like two lanes or three lanes, I can't remember. I said... Do you mind, you know, I said, do you want me to lose these people? You know, zoom off. And Bob went, yeah. So as soon as the lights were, you know, just about to change, I, you know, done a left so that they couldn't get round the corner and get that. And Bob was really excited about this. I get to the hotel. He went, oh, that was brilliant and everything like that. So we the next night we're in Glasgow and Kramer comes up and he goes, uh, Bob wants you to drive for him. <laughs> he wants you to drive him to Ireland in a car. And I go, well, I can't because I was the, uh, for the show, I was uh, pr- uh, the promoter rep for Barry Dickens at ITB, who was, uh, was his agent and everything. I said, I can't because, you know, the gig's my responsibility. So when he came off stage, he said, um, Kramer said to me, Bob wants to say goodbye to you and everything. And, um, you know, I shook hands with him and he said, you know, thanks for everything and went off into the night. And I always remember the funny thing because Barry Dickens came up to me. He goes, I've been his agent for 25 years. He's never spoke a word to me. He said, (laughs) you weren't one night. He's talking to you like your long lost friend. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Were so, you around during the writing of the wall? How did so the the Michael Cayman stuff? How how did yeah. uh, how did they hire well, him? Or do you know well, the intricacies? Well, uh, yeah. He'd been around doing bits and pieces for a while on you know projects and stuff. Because the album after Dark Side of the Moon was going to be an album of household effects, so there was going to be no musical equipment. It was I spent hours with Rick Wright going around. Um, super, uh, supermarkets, shops with glasses. And you know, if you fill a glass with water and if it's a... Oh, the sound. You know, and we use that. And for bass, we use... They do that on that Pompeii uh, thing, didn't they? 
Don't well, they sit on the, the Pompeii documentary DVD that Pink Floyd did? Don't they sit there playing with the glasses? Um, I, can't, I don't know. know. It's a bit yeah. random, but I kind of remember. Yeah. Anyway, all right. No, I mean, no, I'm there. I'm one on the, the actual film at uh, Pompeii's. I'm the guy with the hair laying over the mixer. Oh, neat. <laughs> so, anyway, um, we spent ages trying to do all these uh, different sounds. So it was a stiff brush on a floor. There was the base was aeroplane elastic. You used to use on model planes. You know, you used to wind the propeller, and and that would be stretched across a table with a match box underneath. Boom, boom, you know. And we did all that, and it, we'd done about three tracks of varying bits and pieces, and we came to try and put some footsteps on, and we could not get them in sync. And then we found out that the metronome we were using at Abbey Road went out on every six beat. So all the tracks we done were useless. Oh, because the metronome was... They've used bits of it on other albums. But the wall is Roger's life. Yeah. It's, it's Roger's life in music and all the things that happen on it happened. You know, the phone call from America, you know, from Mr. Floyd and all that sort of stuff. That's all real. It's all real. And I, you've probably seen the film with, um, what's his name in it, uh, Geldof, um, which, you know, was really good. Um, but, yeah, I mean, um, Rogers, um, you know, just an amazing, amazing guy. I mean, he's the only guy I've ever met who could – uh, verbally destroy somebody. I mean, he could be that cutting, you know, in a conversation without raising his voice, you know, and, uh, but an amazing guy. And I, I, I think Nick's coming over this year, later this year, he's doing a tour of small theatres, doing mm-hmm. all the early Floyd stuff with, uh, I think one of the guys out of Spandau Ballet, um, Kemp on bass. I'm not sure who else is in the band, but he's playing in Washington. Uh, and luckily, I'm going to be at home, so I'll go and see him. Because I, you know, I, I thought at one time, um, because um, you've seen the picture of the Pink Floyd football team. Mm-hmm. You've seen that. Well, mm-hmm. I've got the original picture at home. And, um, you know, prior to Rick passing away, I thought, because I'm the only one that's left from that era, they've, they've all passed on that. So I actually thought there was a chance of, you know, getting them all back together again. And then, you know, Rick passed away and, and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I mean... That would be phenomenal if they if they did get back together again. But oh, it would be great. I don't think. But you never know. I never thought Guns and Roses would ever get back together. I never thought yeah. they'd talk to one another. And then you hear that they're back. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, there's been some pretty serious offers. It's like Led Zeppelin. It's been some serious offers for them to go back. But I think as time goes on, I think maybe you know, you pass the point of no return, you know, to go back. I suppose you could say there's never passed the point of no return, but I think somehow, you know, those two, it, it just won't happen as much as I'd love it for both of them to happen. Cause yeah, I'd they're be not getting along any better. <laughs> no, I mean, um, 
it's it's such a shame. It's such a shame because, I mean, they could do a week in somewhere and do a different show, you know, every couple of nights. You could do the war one night and, and everything. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I'm animals. That's my favorite. I love that. Yeah. It's great. I, yeah. I, 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 there's bits off all the albums I love. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's... It's just weird to look back because it's 50 years ago for Dark Side of the Moon. 50 years ago. That's what's frightening. I'm thinking, good God, you know, 50 years you know, ago I did that. But it's really weird. It only seems like like yesterday. Yeah. It's um, it, the first time when I left Hull, my hometown, and went down to London, I was um, I came back up and I went to a guy called Johnny Cambridge, who was the drummer in um, in the Rats when, when I was there. And we went around to his mum and dad's council flat. And in the room, there was Mick was there, Mick Ronson was there. And there was this couple sat on the, uh, on the settee uh, working out if they had enough money to buy a packet of cigarettes, and that was Dave and Angie Bowie. Oh. Uh, I can remember that like it was yesterday. And, I mean, that's... Fifty, I don't know, fifty-five years ago, whatever it was, and uh, it was really funny because he was sort of putting. It was all starting to equate the spiders. It was in real early stages and everything, but um, I can always remember him talking to Johnny Cambridge, the drummer, and by profession, him and dad, him and his dad were plasterers. So, you know, when you put sheetrock up, we call it plasterboard, mm-hmm. what they call skim it, you know, mm-hmm. to make it all nice and smooth. Well, they were on piecework. So the more they did, the more money they got. And they used to do these huge housing estates and make fortune. And he went, nah, I don't know whether I really want to be in a band. He did end up playing tracks and stuff with them, but he, Woody Woodman's, he came in and, and, and in the end. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was. Uh, it was pretty weird, uh, you know, but little things like that just stick in your mind. And I, yeah. it's like it happened yesterday. I can see them both sat there going, how much, you know, it was great. When was the last time you saw Rod Stewart, Richard? The last time I saw Rod, I remember, God, it must have been in the 90s. Oh, so it's been a bit. I just wonder how much he's changed from the faces to the 90s. I mean, it's a long period of time, but uh, was he arrogant young guy in the faces? or Pretty much. Yeah, because music sounds it, you know. It's so yeah. good. Yeah, no. I think that's what makes him special. It you is, know, it is. Ar- you know, with any musician and what have you, there's a, an arrogance, I'm not saying in a bad way, but that's what sets them apart from from other people you know is is that i feel sorry to put in richard on that but that's what no, i think that was you know and the last time i saw him i i was in town with i think it must have been tom and they were playing a gig and i went down to the gig and um i went back and i saw him and I forget who was the tour manager at that time. And he said to me, he goes, hey, we're going, everybody's on a bus. We're going straight to the airport. If you want to ride with us, you can. 
I said, okay, yeah. And they said, I'll have the bus drop you at the hotel. I said, all right. So anyhow, um, Rod sat right next to me and we just, he just asked, started asking me about, you know, my parents, how everything was, how I was doing. Why did I, you know, how, why did I leave the Eagles and, you know, just stuff like that. And he wanted to know at that time, I had just built a house in Hawaii. Oh God, it must've been earlier than that then. But anyhow, I had a, I had a house for a while in Hawaii. I built it in 1980 and, uh, he wanted to know if I ever got it built. And I said, yeah, I'm living there. And um, no, it was pretty friendly. As a matter of fact, as weird as it, the faces were, it was like traveling with the Marx brothers <laughs> when I worked with them. I mean, they were constantly pranking everybody themselves. They were doing all that. But for some reason, they became one of my favorite people. Yeah. And every time I saw them, because when they brought me over to England, I was the only, I was the, I was an American. It was unheard of at that time. And I remember they took such good care of me and, you know, just, it's just that respect thing. They knew I respected them and they wanted to make sure I was okay over there. It's, I know it's not, it's been a bit, but do you remember any of the pranks? Oh God. Didn't they? Was Patrick Woodruff there when you were there, Richard? No, he was there after I was there. Um, no, nothing specifically. I mean, they were into tearing up hotel rooms, uh, stuff like that. At They would always be, if there was a press conference, they would turn it into a shambles. <laughs> Their answers and stuff like that. They were very anti-pop press. I remember one time, the last time they did um, Top of the Pops, uh, Mac, the keyboard player, was on the drums. Kenny Jones was playing the organ. I think Ronnie Lane, uh, you know, they just all played different instruments, even though, you know, it was, it was taped. It wasn't a live show. So they did that. Um, I remember the one time they did a gig. Uh, at the BBC called Sounds of Saturday. Okay. And uh, at that time, you could drink in the in the bar at the BBC, but you weren't allowed to bring any alcohol into the studios. Okay. So the night before, uh, they asked me to get everything that they needed to drink and put it in the gear, and we'd sneak it into the into the studio, into the dressing room. So we did that. I got it in the dressing room. And at first, when they first went on stage, they were, you know, they went on stage, they were properly dressed and everything. And we had everything poured into cups. By the end of the set, Ronnie Lane's walking around stage with a bottle of wine, his shirt half undone. There, you could tell they were all blasted, <laughs> you know, and they're just like, okay, yeah, now we're going to do this. And they were the best drunk band I ever worked for. Let me tell you. <laughs> We, when, they, when they played the uh, first time we played the Fillmore East, I remember that uh, and they were in the chinky, drinking this cheap ass wine, too, which always surprised the hell out of me. But anyhow, Bill Graham uh, announced them and he goes, the film, Bill Graham and the Fillmore East and the Matus Bottling Company proudly <laughs> present the faces. And they'd come staggering out, you know, with bottles of wine and, hey, how you doing? And then later on, there was a tour that we did that they actually had a bar on stage and we had a bartender who was a good friend of mine, Nikki Hayes. 
and they would walk up and he'd pour their drinks right on stage. And that was the Patrick Woodruff tour. <laughs> I probably was. I shouldn't say. Yeah. Patrick used to run the sex police on 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 the faces. I just had Carmine a piece on a uh, a couple of days ago, and so he was telling me all about the sex police. Yeah. Oh, God. yeah. Uh, what about the cars? What about the cars? They were great. They were great, but there was this like very different sound, at least to me. So it must have been somewhat exciting to be like, this is different. This is new. This is fresh. This is cool. It was. was. Rick was just, I mean, Rick was an amazing person. I really respect him. He's one of the people, him and Graham and Tom and are the three people that uh, I really respect in the business. And they were were just super to work with. Um, Yeah. You know, he basically directed everything in that, him and Ben Orr. The other guys were good players, Elliot and David Robinson. They're good players, but it was Rick and and Ben that really led the creative way, you know, in writing and all that. And Rick, in his unassuming, very low-key way of doing things, that, you know, he wanted to get it done. Yeah. No, and uh, as a matter of fact, I did the last tour that they did in the, I guess it was the 90s at some point. They went out and did that, and that was probably going to be it. I realized Rick was going like, you know, this is going to be it. We're done. Such We're- a good man. Who's easier to work with, Don Henley or John Fogarty? Oh, God. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> Take the fifth on that. <laughs> Now you're picking the bottom of the pile where I'm tough ones. Now you're picking the bottom of the pile. I kind of forget those, those people (laughs) for a good reason. If there was one more tour that you guys could do, what band would you pick that you've worked with to do it with? I think we'd both go for the same one if he was alive. Yeah. I thought if you'd say that, I really did. Um, Yeah. It seems like the Tom Petty crew is is like a true family. And like Pantera, I know, very different. But they really think of themselves as a family, these guys. And it seems the Tom Petty crew is the same. Yeah, absolutely. We all still communicate. You know, I mean, um, you know, it's it's still, it's hard. I'll tell you one thing that Tom said to me one time. And uh, we had just gone from the clubhouse where they did just, getting songs together down the Sony Sony pictures where we had the whole set. And we just moved from the clubhouse and we're our first day in the set where we had everything up and everything. And uh, I got there. Tom usually got there about three 30 or four band gets there about three. Um, Tom gets there you know, a little after three. Sometimes I get a call from my friend, Mark Carpenter, who drive, who was my assistant. He drove Tom around town and brought him to rehearsal and took him to the dentist and stuff like that. So about 1130, I get a call from Mark and he goes, Hey, I'm taking Tom to the dentist. And as soon as I says, he says, it's over here in Beverly Hills and it's only 20 minutes. He might not want to go back to Malibu. I said, okay. I says, give me a heads up if he's heading this way. And he said, okay. So he calls me back. He goes, yep, we're heading down to the studio. Sony. And I said, okay, fine. So I let everybody know, listen, Tom's going to be here in a half hour. Let's get, you know, let's get the coffee going. Let's make it like he's coming right now. 
So we get everything, and we had changed a couple things. We'd moved Ben a little bit. We put a partition here and that, and that. And I remember Tom came in, and he went and got some coffee, and he talked to a couple guys. Then me and him, I was in front of the mixing board out in the, out in the house. And he came up, and I was telling him, okay, we've done this, we've done that. Da, da, da. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's sitting there drinking his coffee, and he goes, you know, when I'm here with you guys, this is the safest place in the world for me. I love being here with just you guys. And when the band comes, he goes, because there's no distractions. We're just, we're all here to do the same thing. He goes, and this is the safest place in the world for me. And I felt so, he goes, because at home, I get all these questions. He got women at home. And he had a lot of questions. <laughs> and a lot of, okay, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. I'm doing this. I'm, you know, whatever that. But when he came to the studio, especially there, it was like, what do you want, Tom? How can we make this better for you? You know, and he understood that. And that gave me a great sense of pleasure, I'll tell you. Yeah, that's good. That's why working with that guy was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. I second that. Absolutely. I remember what Dean told me a story one time, and I wasn't there when it happened, but... Tom had called me up and he said, hey, uh, can the bus pick me up at the Malibu, my Malibu house across from the big house? Because he had beach houses and he had a big house across the highway where the studio and the pool was and everything. And the beach houses were quite small, one bedroom places. So he had three of them and he rented two of them out. And he had one that he could go and just had a piano there, guitars. He could just go there and be there. So... uh, he calls up and says that. I said, okay. So like Dean calls me up and says, he wants the bus to pick him up at the studio at the, at the beach house. I says, we can do that Dean, but it's got, I says, the bus can't be there for longer than 10 minutes. It's on Pacific coast highway and the California highway patrol. They deal with stars and movie stars and all kinds of stars all the time. They will troll that fucking thing if it's there long. And he goes, okay, I got it. I said, tell Tom, you know, once the bus gets there, 10 minutes, got to be on, you know? I said, okay, fine. So he goes there and he's telling Tom this and Dana walks up, his wife, and <laughs> says, well, you know, I've got my friend Marsha coming over. She might be a little late. And Tom looked at Dana and says, Dana, do not fuck with Richard's world. And that was about it. And I got that from Dean, you know? And I went, he said that? He goes, yeah. I said, God bless Tom. Because he had his eye on the ball. He knew what we were doing. He knew that we were making it as easy for him as we could, whether it be at the gig where Chris was or whether it be getting to the gig in the hotel. One of the other things that he was really interested in is when he wasn't at the gig, he wanted to be resting somewhere. He wanted to be in a nice hotel, watching cowboy movies, sitting on his bed and playing guitar. Yeah. That was his day off. You know, he didn't want to go to a gig, didn't want to go to a movie. He'd go shopping for guitars. Yeah. <laughs> he did that in Chicago a lot. But basically, he just wanted as much rest as he could because he wanted to make sure when he got up there, he was ready. Yeah. He was giving his best. And like Chris knows, me and Chris put him on the stage many times with a little worried because his knee was gone. And as soon as he'd get on the stage, he was like, okay, yeah, it doesn't hurt now. But I knew as soon as he got off the stage, it was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Replace me, you know, but it just, he was super. Mm. He was super. 
Yeah. That's great stuff. Well, yeah, I definitely appreciate your guys' time. Oh, if yeah. you have any other stories, share them, please. But if not, uh, yeah. thank you, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, I look- it's difficult to give you more stories. I mean, you think of stuff afterwards. I know um, Kevin, my lighting crew chief for Richard, he did Tom as well. Because um, I've still, I've got all my lighting crew out, a good proportion of them that are out with me with with Leopard, uh, were old guys who did Petty with us. Kevin uh, Cassidy? Yeah. Yeah. Kevin Cassidy's out um, out with me. He's, uh, he's my lighting crew chief. And I did Bon Jovi in, uh, uh, where are we, in April. And he was like stage managed it for me. He's very versatile in different areas and a super guy. And, you know, um, I've also got, Tell uh, Agatha was my was rigor with Tom for years and years. He's my advanced guy, you know, because he's just spent two days rigging us in uh, in the Alamo Dome here in San Antonio. So um, he rang while we've been on. So I'll have to give him a call. He's up in in Arlington now rigging. I've, you know, I've got an advanced crew going ahead and rigging and doing. So um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the people that. that yeah, there and Rich has done the same with, with yeah. Steve and Dan. Dean's out there. Uh, security guy Dean. I got my tour tour accountant Joshua. Joshua. For stage manager Larry Yeager. Yeah, you which know? were all all part of the the family, yeah. and so yeah, I mean, we and we all stay very much in touch. You yeah. know, even if it's just a quick phone call, hey, how are you doing? You know, Richard will ring me and say, hey, you, hey you're well, and, you know, just, just to make sure everybody's, you know, okay. So it's nice. Lots of times I'll walk into a building, and I'm sure you get this too. You walk into the building, hey, Chris and Addison and Cassidy were just here. Hey, yeah. this guy was just here. One of your guys, they all know us yeah. collectively, and they know that we've broken apart and we're in different places now. And like the, you know, the, 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 either the promoter rep or the union rep goes, Hey, your guy, a couple of your guys were just here. That's right. That's cool. Yeah. Did you ever see the Beatles play before they got huge or anything like that? Oh, I never saw them before they got huge. No, but I did see him. And, um, funny enough, Tom and Richard and everybody, we did George's, um, show um at oh, the royal albert hall the um oh was it when his son played uh gently yeah. Yes. For george yeah yeah george. yeah me and mick double did all the production and tom came and played i mean that was uh you know who's who of the, the entertainment business oh yeah amazing we did that oh, Hall. here's what. So I had Amit Zappa on, and we had a really great time. Uh, do you have any great, any good uh, Frank uh, Frank Zappa stories? You know, Frank was probably one of the most intelligent people I ever worked with, and I worked with a lot of smart dudes. Um, the one thing we were in Europe, and Frank was doing a lot of smaller gigs. You know, he gigged all over the place, and we were in France, and we were heading to Germany. And that's the time when, I don't know if you remember, if you're old enough, do you remember the Biter-Meinhof gang? They were a left-wing, they were a left-wing terrorist organization out of Germany. No, didn't, no. Now, it's kind of like, you ever heard of the Weathermen in America? 
They were a left-wing, radical wing in the 60s. No, I'm thinking of a Raymond Pettibone album. I think I'm yeah, very, on, very on the <laughs> They've threatened to blow up all the Lufthansa flights. Oh, geez. So Frank comes to me and says, do we have any? We're heading to Germany. He goes, do we have any Lufthansa flights? He says, yeah, we got a lot of them. And he says, put us on a train. So I said, okay, fine. So I put, we arranged it, rearranged it to put it on a train. Sometimes we had to leave at seven or eight o'clock in the morning. We'd get to the train station and you have to get there early and we're waiting on the train and it's kind of indoor outdoor thing. And Frank would sit down. He had like this briefcase that looked like what models carry their photos in. He opened, and I, I was standing behind him at the time and it blew my mind. He opened it up, he opened up a piece of sheet music and just started writing. Wow. And he finished like six or eight bars and you'd go like, oh, no, no, no. And then you go on. And I was thinking, my God, this guy's creating right fucking here. And that was, you know, that was, you know, something that really impressed me a lot. And, and, you know, I mean, he, his, his, um, his rehearsals are very uh, straightforward. Um, the band was there ready. He got up there and started playing. And if you made him, he knew, he wrote every note and every drum thing and everything. Everybody had charts. And he'd stop. He'd go, okay, you know, on that bridge, you hit the hi-hat. You're not supposed to hit the hi-hat there, buddy. Go, okay. So, and he'd go, do you know the song? And he'd go, yeah, I'm sorry. And if they did it twice, he would say, he would look over at me and go, that's 50 bucks or 25 bucks. Oh. And he'd go, learn the song. We'll do it tomorrow. Boom. But he never collected anything. He never, he never, and that's what blew my mind. I had sheets with these guys, and he, I just said, Do you want me to do it? He goes, I don't care what you do with them. (laughs) It was just the fact of, you know, a demerit. And he was unbelievable. You know, he was true to his craft. Yeah. You know, really learned man. Well, thank you very much, guys. I appreciate everything. I look forward to talking to you both soon. All right, yeah. you take care, Joe. I hope the tours go good. You're done with Steely Dan, or for yeah, we're done, we're done for the year. I think we'll see. Cool. Well, the next one soon. All right, yeah. take care. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe by clicking the round button on the bottom right. To learn more about me or the guests on the show, go to joelrody.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. The handle's Joel Rohde. And don't forget, when you party like a rock star, don't be a dick.